I want to thank those who um, rounded out 2017 for us uh, with great donations to the uh, Foundation for Jewish Broadcasting, fjbunity.org. People continue to do so even now at the beginning of 2018. Much appreciated, uh, including the Holmline family, who, uh, and that means a tremendous amount to us, who uh, found it appropriate to uh, support our work, despite the fact that we bother Malcolm for hours upon hours collectively uh, <laughs> every single year. Um, uh, so please, if you haven't yet given, uh, take the... Uh, Follow the lead, rather, of uh, community leaders and others who understand the importance of keeping this program going and our network going, fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us on this cold Friday morning broadcast at JM and the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Enjoying the heat wave. Yeah, to say the least. Uh, good to hear it is rain in Israel, thank God. Thank God. Very important. Yeah, no question about that. Uh, but everyone should stay safe, and no matter where everybody is, uh, they should be extra careful with these difficult weather conditions. Speaking of Israel, um, a message got back to me from somebody who's very close to the situation. I'm sure you've heard this message already, uh, but it's so important, and it really opened up my eyes uh, to an extent. And that is that um, as the President of the United States witnesses the Jewish community uh, celebrating and being in jubilation for different circumstances, no criticism, just an observation, uh, it, it seems, according to some observers, that he might be slightly perturbed that the Jewish world collectively has not celebrated his decision regarding Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and the future home of the U.S. Embassy in Israel uh, nearly as much. So I take this opportunity even weeks later to remind everybody that their letters and their emails and whatever celebrations communities want to come up with are appropriate and appreciated in Washington. I'm sure you agree. I agree completely. We've talked about this now since uh, since the decision, and you see those who still criticize, although it's diminished greatly. Uh, you saw the session of the United Nations, the vote, uh, 128 to 9. We saw the, but what doesn't get attention is that almost a third of the members of the Congress of the UN abstained or absented themselves or the nine who voted against, and that pursuant to the vote, so far, about 10 countries have indicated an interest in, or even more, about moving their embassies to Jerusalem, and they deserve our support. Countries like Romania, yeah. which has proposed it, and uh, Paraguay, and to encourage them to move ahead with uh, what, what they decide, the Czech Republic, Doris, all ought to be hearing from us, and we sent out a leadership action network, and we're happy to send it to anybody who wants can contact the Conference of President's office at 212-318-6111, and we will send you the LAN, which includes the addresses, everything in one page, what you have to do. But the, the showing of Karsatov to the administration is still important. I think many people did, more than uh, people have gotten on the bandwagon. If everybody who told me that, that more should be done did it, <laughs> we would have already had a great response. That's true. But it, 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 it's also... Um, and the the you know in the winter it's hard to have public gatherings, but I know many synagogues, many rabbis spoke about it, and that even some of the naysayers at the time of the decision have since reverted their positions and and modified and been supportive, especially during the UN vote at the time of the UN vote. Uh, there, this is an issue of consensus in Israel. It doesn't mean a hundred percent, or but certainly across the board of the major political parties and and the public expressions that it's um, it's been supported as any rational person uh, Jew should uh, because it is not a challenge and it's not a threat it's a recognition of our historic claim of and writing a wrong that has been allowed to to fester for for too long so hopefully some people will start moving the the into Jerusalem 
that the effort to build an embassy will begin in earnest there. Uh, but the reaction of the Palestinians and the obstinacy and the threat of the administration to finally hold them to account and to say, we're not going to give you money. We're not going to give $300 million a year to UNRWA for Palestinian refugees who should have been out of camps and settled decades ago. Uh, we're not going to allow you to lie about us and insult the United States and, and certainly to attack Israel. And we're not going to allow you to find go to international bodies to bypass negotiations. You come to the table or there'll be a price to pay. Uh, I, I got to go back for a second. I do want to speak about UNRWA, et cetera, but I, I got to go back one second. You, you just said, I want you to reiterate if in fact I got this right. There are, there are people in leadership positions, what I gather from what, the way you said it, in Jewish organizations and in other areas of Jewish life, who may have reacted in somewhat of a negative way when the president made his announcement about the policy change regarding Jerusalem, who now have in some way come around and are more supportive, whatever that means, of what he did and are more in line with, I think, what you would describe as the you know, traditional Jew, Jewish reaction to his announcement regarding Jerusalem. Do I have it right? Yes. Wow, exactly. that's amazing. And nobody know, would know this better than you from your position. That's amazing. That's, that's wonderful news. Now, now, we, now we get to speak about, as you just brought up, we get to speak about the president's um, uh, declaration regarding, well, the declaration, his analysis of the situation of the United States supporting UNRWA and also supporting the PA, etc. So first, let's do the PA first. Uh, it, it sounds like a threat. It sounds like the president of the United States threatened this week that if they don't get back to the negotiating table or if they don't at least show some type of desire to uh, to restart the peace process on their part, he's ready to cut off all funding. What is this a veiled threat, a serious threat? How would you classify it? I, I don't think it's a threat. I think it's an assertion of American policy that you cannot have it both ways, that you cannot uh, insult us, you cannot violate uh, and, and uh, make the statements that you've had, lie about the United States, attack it, claim that, that the what the administration did is different than what they actually did, and to, at the same time, reap the rewards of the relationship with the United States, meaning the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. But think of the president, the Taylor Force Act, right. which would cut funds and enjoys broad bipartisan support in Congress, cut funds for, for the continued incitement, the honoring of martyrs, the money that they take from uh, from the budget to hundreds of millions of dollars each year to pay terrorists and those in prison or, the mar- or those who were killed and, you know, claim them to be martyrs and give their families uh, houses and all sorts of things, that these things are, there are ample precedents. And that's America. It's a legitimate uh, right of a country to determine where their money goes and how their, it is used and to give it to friends and to say, look, we have limited money. If you if you are going to pursue policies that are both contrary to the interests of the United States of our allies to incite against the United States, we're going to we're going to extract a toll for it. Right. And and look, we think of the consequences and, and you know, we don't want to burden the full misery. We don't want to see the complete disruption. You know, we do give some money to, to directly to projects. They didn't talk about eliminating it. They're talking about a cutback. Right. And Abbas added, as did Arafat, never cared about the consequences for his people. You know, their kleptocracy goes on. They get, they're cut off the top and the, the money that they and their families uh, steal. It's it's a major issue, the kleptocracy in, in, for the Palestinian people who, who care and who've spoken out against it. And, uh, and as you notice, the reaction in the street has diminished so much, despite the incitement, right. and that uh, dissipated much quicker than anybody had anticipated, that the United States wants the negotiations to go on. Uh, I think a lot of people would be skeptical about what you're going to negotiate at this point, but they they want the, the um, talks based on the, the principles that the president's enunciated and, um, to go ahead, and they are going to use their leverage to get it. Procedurally, is it a unilateral decision? Does it have to go through Congress, a cut in aid like this, or any type of significant reduction? No, the administration can do it. We, we have cut aid in the past. 
um, in over the uh, incitement issue and over other things, and you know, we impose sanctions on countries. The administration has a lot of leeway to do these things. And on the UNRWA, I would assume it's the same thing that it, that you know it's it's essentially the White House decision about whether they should continue right. funding it or not. Um, the reaction from Israel, at least according to the New York Times, has been very interesting. Uh, it seems that the members of the administration in Israel and others would discourage the U.S. from cutting off at UNRWA funding. Uh, what, what's the truth? Well, some of the uh, objections uh, are based on the fact that that these the money goes for food and for you know to to um, for basic needs, and that the fund some of the funding is given specifically for projects which Israel encourages, such as and, and including money that goes into to Gaza. Remember, eight nine hundred trucks a day go into Gaza with aid, and that. That this uh, without it, you could face really uh, severe and dire consequences. Israel often is the one that has to come to the aid of the, pal- of the Palestinians when they have their infighting. And the PA wants their all the electricity cut off in Israel. You know, try to mitigate that a little bit. Um, eventually, the electricity was cut because Abbas said he wasn't going to pay for it anymore. And again, you know, they let the people suffer for their political uh, crises and, and uh, conflicts. Uh, so Israel has to look at this in an objective way, and you have to realize that there are consequences sometimes that have to be taken into account. All right, so the impression is that the majority of that money, maybe I'm wrong about majority, is used for, for food, water, etc., and, and therefore, you know, one has to look at it very carefully before cutting before cutting those payments. Well, you know, the threat always is that the PA sets, you know, we're going to close down, we're going to shut it, then then the burden falls on Israel because it is legally in charge of the legal authority there. I mean, there are debates about that, but the, the, the there are consequences that um, that Israel has to take into account, the situation on the ground. And uh, as long as as long as they continue to um, to fund them, is, is it is it? Detrimental to Israel politically, for it, let's put it this way, for those members of the Israeli administration who would like the world to acknowledge that there is no refugee problem, at least not the way that the PA and others describe it, is it bad to have you know refugee funding uh, exist, you know, just politically the way it sounds, the way that the impression that's given out there? Look, the whole the whole system is is corrupted and warped. The fact that you have special units in the United Nations, which are really just propaganda machines against Israel, and that you have uh, an article of the Human Rights Council, you have all these things. You see the Human Rights Council not convening over what's going on in Iran, but still convening regularly and, and focusing on Israel. So the. Um, uh, the whole question of the refugee issue and the whole sustaining of this for all of these decades when it long should have been resolved. Right. Um, yeah, you're right. It goes to the core of the issue is is uh, is problematic. Uh, but then you're talking about the humanitarian right, yeah. consequences and stuff, which, again, you know, it's the burden of the Palestinian Authority. They should, all, all the United States is asking them has come to the table. They didn't ask them for any concessions. They didn't ask them for anything else. And, frankly, the president made some strong statements about saying, look, I, I made this move on Jerusalem. I could have essentially squeezed the Israelis, and uh, you, you, you passed up the opportunity. Uh, the Central Committee of the Likud Party has voted unanimously to endorse exercising Israel's sovereignty over Judea and Samaria. I, I, I couldn't believe when I found out they had not done this in the past already, frankly. I mean, it is the Likud Party, after all. Yeah, but, then, you know, Likud is the, the government, and, the, 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 you know, there are all sorts of bills that people are introducing now on political grounds, maybe because they think elections are coming, maybe because they're, you know, looking for succession and mm. future leadership positions. Um, but, uh, the, I mean, this has been introduced before. Uh, the United States will weigh in, I think, and others will, so we, we'll have to see if this actually gains the force of law. Does it change but, anything if it gets the force of law? I don't think it changes much on the ground. 
So it's a symbolic, and as you just pointed out, it could be a political move to make a statement as we get closer and closer to elections. Symbolism is still important. Sometimes, you know, these kind of steps uh, are important to to assert the the rights and what the expectation is, but it doesn't change what fundamental policies have been. Break the news to me now. How close are we to Israeli elections? (laughs) Is it still a couple of years away or not? Well, I mean, the election would start next year anyway, but the, no there are people who are talking about it earlier, right. and some of them are maneuvering as if it's going to be earlier, but nobody knows. Uh, it depends on the outcome of the investigations. It depends, you know, whether will an indictment, if one is forthcoming, be sufficient reason for, to force somebody to step down. As you know, the new laws would change that as well. Uh, that a sitting prime minister, he can't be investigated until they're out of office, and um, uh the interpretation now is also that the indictment is not sufficient. You need a conviction before they would have to leave. And, and these investigations, as you see, drag out for many months. Oh, yes. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web. NachumSegal.com on the NachumSegal Network. And, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Uh, Friday morning broadcast with Malcolm Holmline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. All right, we go to Iran. Uh, you got to explain the situation. So, first of all... What precipitated these protests and demonstrations? It's been, I think I read, uh, seven, eight years <clears throat> since demonstrations, the size and <clears throat> with the enthusiasm and momentum of these. Why now? So there are a lot of uh, reasons that are being put forward. There are people in Iran who are trying to manipulate this to say this was a move by the hardliners. It was moved by the Rahani forces against the hardliners. It started in the grassroots, as opposed to the demonstrations in 2009. This one did not start in the big cities, in Tehran, Shiraz. This one started in peripheral areas. It started uh, uh, in Qum and in uh, uh, Mashhad and other places where... It was surprising that it didn't, because that was generally areas of strong support for, for Khamenei. Uh, and it spread quickly. It, it, uh, last time it was in the major cities. Now it was in more than 20 cities at the time. And many more people participated. Hundreds of thousands uh, demonstrated. And interestingly, the economic issues clearly were, were a major issue. They, they got no benefit out of the Iran deal, as they were all promised, and as the previous administration said would, would happen. And we all warned that none of that money would ever reach the people, that it would go to you know the the leadership who control 40% of the economy the revolutionary guard the Khamenei's, uh, the supreme leaders household they all get the benefit and and it, and it, it benefits people in Tehran government officials but it didn't seek down to the people unemployment amongst youth is over 40% uh, as i reported here a long time ago that we heard the campuses are half empty that uh, young people are rebelling against the mullahs and they were yelling death to the dictator which is unheard of, because this could carry a death penalty. More than two dozen people have been killed in these demonstrations. Uh, but the government has been restrained in its response because they fear that that would settle even a greater response. And we'll have to see if they bring in some of the forces, armed forces like Afghani fighters and others that were in Iraq and in Syria. Uh, the Basiji, who are very extreme, uh, the Iran Revolutionary Guard and drive around on motorcycles and beat up people and kill have been reluctant. They they uh, they don't want to kill their neighbors. So you you bring in people from other cities to do it because it's easier to kill people you don't know wow. and don't, and can't be held accountable for uh, the crimes you commit. So th- this started in in these cities and it extended for for days with as I would say a more limited response. There is a greater crackdown now. We have to haven't gotten the reports yet of what happened after the Friday prayers today which is now, we should be getting uh, any minute reports. The stories that they circulated, the demonstrations were over, are not true. They may have been diminished, but they're not over. And 
Remember, this is the winter time when it's harder to get people out in the streets. And they yelled, we will not die for Gaza. We will not die for Lebanon. We will die for Iran. Leave Palestine. Objection to the millions that have been spent in Syria and elsewhere rather than on the domestic economy. So it is a serious movement. It tells you that people are tired of the theocracy and of the economic deprivation that they see Iran engaged in all these wars and all these conflicts and sending money all over the world and and that they are uh, paying the price for it. So it, it, is, a, uh, it is a serious um, development. We will have to see how far it goes. There are elections coming up in, in the spring, early spring from in Iran. Uh, there's a lot of always manipulation before those elections take place. But I would say that this was a grassroots expression that, is of a different quality than what we saw before. So people would rather fund the government, fund their their food and shelter, than than fund the takeover of the entire Middle East and the, and the support for terrorist groups and right. for uh, other things and they the other you know activities in Syria particularly, which has been very expensive for them and in Yemen. Um, and people do know about it, despite the control of the media. We see that the internet played an important role, and the government is shutting down a lot of the internet sources are trying to interfere with social media. U.S. reaction to all this? Has been very good. The president spoke out right away, the administration did, as opposed to both the two previous administrations, which uh, during the Bush administration and Obama administration, when the secretaries of state, uh, Colin Powell and then Hillary Clinton, in similar circumstances, said we don't get involved in family disputes, we don't get involved in family fights, and uh, essentially sent a message to that demoralized uh, the movements. And this time the reaction was, we stand with you, we support you. The United States is asking and others may be asking for a Security Council meeting, for Human Rights Council to be convened, wow. at least to send messages of support to them, and hopefully we'll also send them what they need. One is that our broadcast, the VO at Voice America, others, uh, um, the Iranian radio broadcast, uh, should be uh, re- reformed. We, we, you know, In many cases, they're, they're broadcasting messages supportive of the government, and again, some of our, uh, Iran's neighbors who are pro-American have been taking the brunt of their criticism, so hopefully that will be reformed, and we will see them sending messages of support to the to the people inside Iran that the United States um, can find other ways and that it's not military intervention or troops or it's uh, fax machines and, and and mostly right now it's moral support you have union leaders union members uh, students uh, workers who, who formed the nucleus of this and then it moved to the bigger cities and there you know you can reach people one of the unions that was not very supportive would be the uh, European Union, <laughs> because, <laughs> because 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 European countries uh, criticized the way the U.S. Uh, responded to all this. Well, they're under uh, first of all their lack of response. You know their obsession with Jerusalem and their willingness even to vote against the United States at the UN over right. the Jerusalem issue shows the the moral bankruptcy and the distortion of uh, of what's happening in the EU. All of which is going to spell its own doom uh, over time. But it, it, people say to you know play to the domestic Muslim populations. It's uh, you know against the United States because they don't like Trump or whatever. Uh, but the the fact here. This has nothing to do with the United States. Why are they not there speaking out in support of the Iranian people, and at least to protect their rights, the right to speak out, the right to protest? There have been minor statements, but most of them, or many of them, have big economic investments in Iran. They have been signing contracts. 
which are going to be harder and harder to implement. The United States hopefully will, will introduce more sanctions, that we will see a systematic approach. This is not just, uh, you know, uh, instant reactions. We need to have a coherent policy, and as many countries as possible. You see the Russians took a fairly lukewarm reaction, the Chinese also, uh, to, to the events. Obviously, they're going to support Iran. Uh, but I think the, you know, people have to look into these things very carefully to see uh, exactly what it means. And, and uh, key figures like Suleimani has not been seen and not been heard throughout this time. Uh, whether there may be a coup, maybe they will try to take over. It could be various forces at, at work. At least that's some of the speculation uh, that we have seen. Uh, and we'll only know with time whether that, those are, any of those are true. Uh, speaking of reaction, by the way, Jerusalem Post Prime Minister Netanyahu's statement in support of the Iranian protesters on Monday was the most widely watched video he has ever posted on Twitter, more than 2 million views. Pretty amazing. You think he hesitated to come out publicly for them? Well, there is always a, a, a debate about coming out publicly, um, especially because, you know, we have a Jewish community there. They're very concerned. They have stayed out of this, right. and, they, and they want to be low-key. Um they the, uh, and especially in the aftermath of the attacks of the synagogues last week in, in Shiraz, so the, they are not a factor in this. But the uh, government, of course, says this is a U.S. Saudi Israeli plot, and there is a debate whether Israel should be out there speaking out because that just reinforces it, or uh, as can, the case can be made in the contrary, that in fact Israel shows the people that they care that they're there when the EU and all these other uh, factors are, are not standing up for them. And the Prime Minister, you know, the Iranians have never hesitated to attack Israel, to criticize <laughs> Israel, to interfere. And the Prime Minister's message was one of support and, and highlighting, and as he did before, I think, Christmas, uh, the plight of the Christians in Iran, and again now. And the Internet has given him a, a platform where he can speak to the Iranian people, and the fact that millions have, have watched it tells you that there's an audience for it. it might, they may all be in Israel, but right. they... Uh, but the fact is that Iranians, uh, I did a, the first uh, message to Iranians years ago, and it got a tremendous response. And, um, you know, it's far from somebody who has a platform like the prime minister. Uh, Iranians are on the Internet. They're, they're listening. They have the ability now to bypass some of the restrictions that are imposed. So the social media is very key right now. And then when Natan Sharansky says that we have a moral obligation in the West to support the Iranian protesters, I mean, who, who would know more? about what, what world reaction should be for people who are oppressed. That he, he draws the link to the to Soviet dissidents, the Russian mm-hmm. Jews, um, who uh, who drew such strength from the messages. And even he told me in the Gulag, he knew about solidarity days we organized. I mean, he knew everybody's mm-hmm. name, he knew what we did. He knew in such detail that I, I was taken aback. And so were others, you know, about every one of the weird demonstrations we organized and all of the, the manifestations and the, the showdowns we had with Russians. Yeah. Well, he, he says, look, people in these circumstances need to know they're not alone. He didn't know as much as the KGB knew about you, Malcolm, but he did know a lot. You're right. Yeah, but I think they used to, you know, make sure that they that they use the information against them. But uh, that's true. The KGB knew a lot. Yeah, they certainly did. Um, could you uh, could you explain this uh, situation with ISIS and uh, and Hamas? Uh, they released this 22 minute video, a threat against Hamas. Uh, that ended, you know, with this brutal image of the uh, of the beheading. Um, one would think, from the perspective of peace-loving Westerners, that ISIS and Hamas are much closer than than than, uh, than the impression we're getting. What is the beef that ISIS has with Hamas? Uh, it's halal beef. It, it, um, <laughs> Very good. 
Yes, I know. Thank you uh, for this hour. Um, look, Hamas and ISIS have worked together. Hamas uh, took in a lot of the ISIS fighters from the, from the Sinai, would come to Gaza to be treated uh, for R&R, for, um, uh, and weapons were going back and forth between them, and weapons coming from Libya through Gaza to get to the Sinai, to uh, ISIS. And then there were a number of uh, development where, where Hamas has tried to draw away because it's something they promised in Egypt when they went for the negotiations, if you remember, between them and Egypt brokered negotiations with the PA, but also because they're trying to get into good graces uh, of the PA, which has cut off, uh, of the Egyptians, which has, which cut off the tunnels and the supply routes and the, um, and, you know, really put a lot of pressure uh, on them. And, and they also have cut back, uh, there's been a cutback in funding, although we believe Iran may be putting more money in and Turkey more, but they're looking to the future. And, and the um, so the conflict with, with ISIS has to do with their cutting back on the cooperation uh, between ISIS and, uh, and Hamas. And ISIS then started supporting Islamic Jihad and uh, other groups there. And there are people who think that ISIS wants to take over in Gaza, and Hamas obviously wants to prevent it. Hard for, I mean, again, the, the, these differences, these political, uh, you know, schisms are so uh, difficult, I think, for, you know, for, for regular people to understand because it seems like uh, all of them are bloodthirsty terrorists who, you know, essentially want to take over the Middle East. You'd think if they worked in cooperation with each other, they may accomplish more. Who knows? But I guess it's not in their best interest. It is not in their best interest. Well, it depends on their interests and never the interests of the people. It's always what the leadership wants and what serves their ideological and extremist ideological ends. Hey, is Bitcoin and uh, and cryptocurrencies going to be a method for governments to uh, hide from the U.S. Uh, uh, you know, financial gains, etc., that may have come from uh, what we would call sanctioned activity? Absolutely. One of the concerns that is being raised is that this is a way to, to hide. It's very hard to trace it. Uh, and um, I think that the government will crack down on it because it, it becomes a way to bypass sanctions and, and uh, even for criminal activity too, people hide income, et cetera. And governments do have the uh, capability of uh, cracking down on it. It's That's like- a good question. And as somebody who can't figure out what, what a Bitcoin <laughs> is and, uh, <laughs> and tried many times with friends and others to understand it and uh, what blockchain does. Uh, I'm and, shocked and I so even know the word so cryptocurrency. I won't, I won't venture any comments about what... <laughs> What can come of it? I just know what I hear from experts and others uh, about how it can be utilized. What do you think of the battle this week in the uh, in the papers, or more accurately in 2017, 2018, uh, on the Internet uh, and Twitter uh, between the leader of North Korea and the president of the United States as it, when it comes to nuclear capability? Um Look, I think the North Koreans, uh, and he has been a manipulator of the press, he's, he's uh, obviously taken resources which are desperately needed by the people of North Korea and invested them in his ballistic missile and nuclear program. And the fact that he talks about a button on his desk that uh, can hit the, you know, launch attacks that can hit the United States or almost all parts of the United States, it tells you what the nature of the enemy is. And I think the, you know, that the only language understands is a tough response. They've gotten away with it for too long. That way we, you know, we may carry a, uh, use strong language, but our stick has been very weak. They have to understand that, that for anything that they threaten us, we can do much more. And that's exactly the truth. And we should have taken stronger action against them. I mean, it, it only escalates. The cost escalates the longer you allow these kind of dictators and terrorists to build up their infrastructure and to, to look like they can, you know, stare down the United States. 
it's funny because with all the outrageous comments that the president sometimes come up, comes up with or outrageous quotes, this one is actually not that outrageous. It's important for the world to remember uh, American capability in this area and especially those who are in North Korea. Finally, this article this morning, uh, New York Times, Israel is offering a stark choice to tens of thousands of African migrants in the country. Agree to live out, leave voluntarily by the end of March with a plane ticket and a grant of $3,500 or face possible incarcerations. Th- these people got to Israel for what reason? For employment? These are economic refugees, not political refugees. And, yeah, that, that I got, right. And the uh, and do they, do they, in fact, take the government up on these offers? Has this been a successful program or it's just starting now? There have been uh, many. Some of them have been there for many years. There are people who have a variety of opinions about it, but, but you know, Israel is a small country, and uh, until they put up the fence in the Sinai, which and, and, <clears throat> along the border, people were crossing the border all the time, thousands and thousands of people, uh, not those escaping political persecution, but talking about economic refugees, and they created a, a whole sections of South, southern Tel Aviv, and the people resented There's been a, a lot of backlash about it. So this is a humanitarian approach saying that, look, we will we will give you money. There are those who, who object to it, obviously, uh, but this is um, uh, but people do. Some people have accepted it, accepted the, the ban and the the ticket. And if their countries from which they came now are, are more stable, they they should go back. If that's the intent, I think you will see it in Europe eventually too. That they cannot continue to sustain it as it is. It's interesting because uh, when when these types of proposals have been made in the past about paying people to leave Israel. They've been met with tremendous criticism, but I guess when it comes to people who are originally from Africa, it's a different story. No, that it's, no the, oh, the criticism was about right. all along, and the question is where are they coming from and, and what is the reason? These are, you know, oh, I, was, I was alluding to the fact that when, when, Israel, when it was proposed that Israel might offer those who would be comfortable in other Arab countries, they offer them grants to leave. That, that, that came under well, fire. Well, some have been offered asylum. Israel, you know, I remember when they took 100 Vietnamese refugees when they took in on boat people. They, they've taken people all along into Israel, including treating Syrians and, and others who then went back home. Right. Um, or, but, but Lebanese, if you remember, from southern Le- uh, Lebanon who had cooperated with Israel were taken in and lived in Israel and were given homes and absorbed. So Israel's record on on reaching out and reaching in, there are people who are critical of of these decisions and on humanitarian grounds, and there've been you know demonstrations for them, and the people themselves have demonstrated that they want to stay in Israel. But a, a country has laws, and the laws have to be adhered to, and the laws have to be you know rational and, and caring. And I think Israel's record in this regard has been very strong. Oh, one 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 more last thing. You heard about the seal from the uh, first temple era. Absolutely, and and for those again who have, don't this Shabbos speak to their kids, look it up. The Jerusalem Post, others had big write-ups about it. Uh, Reuters even wrote it up about the seal that says the governor of Jerusalem. It's reference to the governor of, Jeru- of Jerusalem. Uh, it's uh, twenty-seven hundred years old. Just go and talk about it and say to the kids, you want to know who's got the claim to Jerusalem. You want to know the truth. It's not at on First Avenue and Forty Second Street. Here it is in this little piece of clay, this clay seal that they found, and to talk to him about it. You don't have to be an expert. You just read the article. It'll give you enough to have a very good discussion tonight at your Shabbos table. Phenomenal. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again next week. Good Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update Fridays at JM and the AM. Next Friday, I'm with Kids of Courage out in Phoenix, but I am planning on... uh, Wake it up extra, extra early in a very early time zone so we can conduct the weekly update and uh, analyze the news of the week. So uh, everybody make sure to be tuned in and spread the word.